Welcome to this podcast from the Vessel Collective Church here in the heart of Texas. Our mission is to be vessels of the living Christ, set apart for His purpose and His kingdom. We thank you for sharing in this message here today. Good morning and welcome to Vessel Collective Church. If I don't know you, my name is Jake Toman, and I have the fun of serving as the lead pastor here at The Vessel. And if I had to describe my job in one way, that's how I would describe it as fun. This is uh, an amazing church to be a part of, and I'm so grateful to play a role in it. And so if you're new here this morning, we just want to especially say welcome to you and thank you all for coming. And I want to encourage you to, uh, to not scoot right after church, to take some time to say hello to someone, to get to know someone. Um, we don't do all things well here at The Vessel. I mean, we meet in a gym. But one thing we do well is we do relationships really well. And, and it's the way that we are known. It's the way that the Lord calls us to be known is how we love one another. So I just hope uh, that you feel welcome this morning and comfortable being here with us. Um, so we've been, uh, for the past several weeks since, uh, since post-Easter, we've been walking through a series that we're calling Dear Church. It's a series that we did right at the beginning of the year, and it's a series that we're doing now, and we're gonna come back to it. So basically, if you know much about Scripture, and the Bible, the New Testament, the majority of the New Testament is made up of letters. And they're letters that are written to, from someone or a group of someone's to someone or a larger group of someone's. In this case, we've been walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so it's a, it's a letter that was written by Paul on behalf of Paul, Silas, and Timothy to this church in Thessalonica. Um, and we're going to go right out of 1 Thessalonians into 2 Thessalonians starting in two weeks. And so Paul writes two different letters uh, to this church here. And it's, a really, it's been really sweet that the Lord's brought us here. I joked last week or so that the really spiritual um, and divine reason that we chose this book is that it fit within our schedule. I know that's terrible, but literally we needed, we had eight weeks 1 Thessalonians is five chapters. 2 Thessalonians is three chapters. That's eight weeks. And then boom, June 6th, we start our summer series called The Summer of Love, which I'm super excited about. And so that's how we got here. But the Lord has been really sweet to just speak to us during this. And this church in Thessalonica is a young church that's a lot like us. They, they, they sprung up and they were birthed and born and this church was planted and they're thriving and they're growing. Um, and this is a letter of encouragement. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to read it and to hear the words uh, in that way. There's a lot of letters in the New Testament that have correction or they have a, they're really dense with theology. And this is not one of those. And while there is some guidance and direction that you're going to see today in chapter four, um, and there's plenty of theology in 1 Thessalonians, there's a lot of encouragement for the body to continue to grow. So this week I'm going to be teaching. And then next week is Mother's Day. If you are a uh, man in this room or a child in this room with a mother, let me say that again. Next week is Mother's Day. You should do something. You should write that down. Text yourself, text your siblings. You should do something wonderful for your mother. And so uh, good old My Beautiful Bride Shay Shay is going to be teaching next week. So get excited about that um, to finish out this chapter. So um, what we're gonna be talking about today is 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And so I'm gonna read the last verse of this before we pray and to give you a little context. Actually, before I get into that, I forgot something. 
What else we've been doing through this series is I've been reading letters, personal letters every week of a letter that's in my own life. And I've read them from really informational to thank you letters, to love letters, to anything on that spectrum. And so today, Shay, if you would put up this picture of celebrating the life of Bill Schultz, I'm gonna read to you a piece of an obituary. And I know that an obituary doesn't feel like a letter, but if you think about what an obituary is after someone has passed away, it's a letter to people who knew and loved a person uh, and a letter to them about this person's life. And so I'll share a little bit with you about Mr. Billy Schultz. Uh, uh, Bill was in my life, probably the most significant person that's passed away uh, in my life. I, I haven't lost a parent. I haven't lost a sibling. Um, I haven't buried anyone, you know, immediate family close, but Bill Schultz counts as close as they come, because I grew up with this man. He was a family friend, but they were more like family. He was closer to me than, than nearly any family member. Um, and so Bill passed away a couple years ago. And so I wanna read a little bit of his obituary on the back as a start and a context. And the, really the reason I wanna do this is to get us thinking about what a letter contains. We can read scripture a lot of times with the idea that we are reading an instruction manual that it's gonna tell us what to do. It's gonna tell us how to live. We can read it like a textbook. If you're a student in here, you know a lot about reading a textbook. But a letter is more than that. The letter truly is, shares more than just information. It shares heart. It shares a past and a history. It shares a future and a hope. And we've kind of been all over that spectrum as, as, as we, uh, one of my first weeks, I, wrote a, I read a love letter from me to Shay in 2005 before we were married. And it was a lot about the future and what's coming and being in love and how I hoped what God was gonna do in our family. And so if that's the front end of that, this would be the back end. It's a letter at the end of someone's life reflecting on the past and the history they've been. So just keep that in mind. And I, I chose just a little portion here and you can read along with me. <clears throat> says, Bill loved spending time with his family and friends anywhere he was, camping and traveling all over the U.S., which I've done with Billy Schultz, holidays and celebrations I've done with Bill, participating in his daughter's and then grandchildren's events and helping people anywhere that he saw a need. He was known for his outgoing, never meet a stranger warmth, his famous skills on the barbecue pit, his immaculate yard, and his giant hugs. And he never forgot a birthday, anniversary, or important date ever. He will be greatly missed by former coworkers who called him friend, by Garner buddies with whom he shared fun, food, and a bit of mischief, by nephews who called him mentor, by childhood friends with whom he never lost touch, by a wife who cherished him as her best friend, and by a family and friends who shared in so many special traditions with him. In life and death, Bill always wanted God to be glorified. His life was a shining example of a true servant and of faith. You can't meet anyone who knew him who didn't know his love for Jesus. Man, if, if, if someone ever wrote that, led that line about me, man, to live a good life to where someone could say, no one who knew him didn't know his love for Jesus is powerful. And so we're gonna see here is that Paul talks to this church in Thessalonica about death and about grieving. And so I want you to keep this in mind. I want you to even consider someone in your own life that maybe you've buried, 
a pain that you've had to go through, a life that you've seen loss. So let's pray and we're gonna jump in. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for Billy Schultz. I thank you that even in death, uh, a love for you and a legacy is being shared with your church. Kind of thank you that you call us to a relationship of love with you, with one another. God, that while we were lost and broken and sinners, you first loved us. God, and you loved us so much that you gave your son. Lord, so that we can love you and so that we can be called to love one another. God, I thank you for this time and we just pray that your spirit land in this place. God, every one of us is in a spot right now and you know that spot. So would you just open our ears? God, soften our hearts and let's just receive your word, God, that will change us. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name, amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter two, the last verse of chapter four, not chapter two, chapter four, says this, and this is how you know what this letter is about. It says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That is the last verse of chapter four, verse 18. So I want you to know that this is a word of encouragement and that's the spirit of why this is written. And so what we're gonna do is just walk through this letter. I'm gonna read line by line. I'd love for you to read along. We do have Bibles on that table maybe over there. And if not, we can get you one if you wanna pull it up on your phone or your actual Bible. We are also gonna have a few verses up here that are gonna kind of highlight what we're talking about. So beginning in verse one, Paul writes this to the church in Thessalonica. He says, finally then, brothers. And anytime someone who is like a pastor or preacher says the word finally, you know they're somewhere close to the end. But as you know from this letter, there's two more chapters. So it's not quite finally. But Paul writes, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. And this idea of more and more is where we're gonna focus today, is that Paul says this multiple times in this chapter, he calls them to more and more. And so first he calls them to walk more and more. He says, walk, you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And the truth is, is your life in Jesus Christ or your relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, your potential relationship with Jesus Christ is a journey and not a destination. It's a journey and not a destination. That's why biblically it's called a walk. Is that scripture again and again and again goes back to this idea of us having this walk of faith. What is, and you ask the question like, what does your walk look like? That's a biblical concept. Is it's not about some destination. It's not about getting your ticket to eternity punched, which it's punched, but that's not the end game. The end game is this idea, is it's, it's, it's this journey. So this word walk is a verb and, and literally means to make one's way is what that's translated to. The walk is to make one's way. So it's not aimlessly wandering about. It's not a walk without purpose. It's a walk in a direction to make one your way towards something. Scripture says this. Here's several verses that mention walking. First John 1 17, or 1, 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Proverbs three, five and six. This is a verse that my uh, 
11-year-old daughter and I uh, just memorized recently. So she's down in Vessel Kids. So you can go and quiz her after service and see her freeze up and not be able to remember. But it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. You see, our journey with Christ and our relationship with Christ truly is a walk. And that's what Paul is encouraging them to do, to walk with Christ more and more. And again, this is encouragement. This, is, this isn't a reprimand. He's not saying you're not walking with Christ. He says you're walking with Christ just as you ought to be doing and you need to more and more. And he says walk in a way that pleases and that strives to please. Romans 8, 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So to truly walk in relationship with Jesus and to walk in a way that brings him pleasure and that pleases God with your life. And I think that the problem is, is that a lot of times what we can do in church and in Christianity is we undersell Jesus. We undersell Jesus. And I can confess that I've done this in my own life. That I think, man, if I could just get someone to just come across the line to consider Jesus, that I can just sell them a little bit, then it's like a hook and I'm going to get them. Right? And what you end up doing is we undersell Jesus. We say, oh yeah, you can get Jesus and you can fit him into your life. Whatever your life that you're living right now, like Jesus can fit in. You just make a little bit of room. You can compartmentalize everything. And just like you go to work, just like you're a parent, just like you're a neighbor, just like you're into music, like there's a spot for Jesus. And if you can just make some room and put him in there and we undersell Christ, because I can promise you this, Jesus does not fit in your life, period. He doesn't fit. So if you're trying to consider what does it look like to make room for Christ in my life, he doesn't fit. So we, we often go in with that question of what does this require of me? Like if I'm gonna consider Jesus, what is the bare minimum requirement so I can barely skate under, so I can get in and so that I can have this relationship? We want the bare minimum. Whereas Jesus wants everything. Like we think we, we do that with like our tithe or we, the church talks about tithe. Oh, you can tithe 10%. 90%'s yours, 10%'s Jesus. And you divvy it up that way and it's easy. I will, I will break it to you. Jesus wants everything. He wants your whole life. Every breath that you take, every thought that you live, every relationship that you have is a stewarding of a relationship with Jesus. As that's what he gave. He gave his life so that you could have yours in him. And so what we do is we undersell Jesus. And we make this mistake by thinking, if I can just fit him in, if I can make room, it's not gonna disrupt. I can still have my comforts. I can still have my security. I can still have my reputation, all these things. And we undersell Jesus and I'm guilty of that. And so would you ever, like, if you think about this bare minimum, barely making room, I'm gonna follow Jesus, just what's required so my ticket to heaven can be punched. Is there another part of your life that you would do that? Think about money. Think about, would you ever go and hire a job and get a job and they're gonna offer you a job, say, we're gonna pay you $80,000 a year. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can get, what's the bare, I can get by on 40, right? You don't need to give me 80. 40 is fine. That's crazy. No, you want as much as possible. You went in wanting 75, they offer you 80 and you're like, I was thinking 90. So, you know, you're trying to get as much as you can. Imagine if you did that, right? You sit down and you make a budget and you think, okay, where are we gonna put all these things? Your question isn't the opposite. How can I live on as little as possible? And we do that with Jesus. 
We think, how can I get by with this little, with this sliver as possible? And we laugh about money and we laugh about living a life that way. But what if you did? What if you lived a life you said, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna live on as little as possible. I'm gonna take my time and, and my time is gonna be as, li- as less as possible for me so that I can give more away, so I can serve others. And if we lived a radical way, and that's what it would look like to follow in Jesus. It's like your relationship with your spouse. When you fall in love, there's no consideration of what's the bare minimum so that this beautiful girl will marry me. No one asks the question, you think, I'm in love. I think about her all the time. I want to write her letters. I want to be with you forever. And you're in love and you just can't get enough, right? Imagine if you treated, treated a relationship with a spouse like that. Like, okay, Shay, what's the requirement that you require from me for us to be in a relationship as little as possible? That's all it's going to take. And you, and you think, okay, deal. Do you think she would have married me? No, she shouldn't have married me in the first place, right? She wouldn't have married me. Why? Because you're approaching it like a contract. I'm approaching it, if you approach a relationship like that, like a contract, it's not a contract. It's a covenant, a covenant relationship with the Lord. And that's what God is calling us into. And if we aren't careful, if we aren't careful, we will produce believers who reasonably follow Jesus Christ rather than disciples who radically follow him. And that's what God's calling us to do. So when Paul writes this letter, he's like, man, you guys, you're living for Jesus. You're walking this life and this faith that brings honor and glory and pleases him. And he's like, do it more, more and more. And I want you to know that your relationship with Jesus is a well that never runs dry. There is no bottom. As much as you love and connect with Jesus, there's more depth there. You never enter the bottom of that. And that's what we're called into. We're called into a relationship with him to walk more and more. And if you don't know Jesus, that's what he offers. That's what he's offering you. Not a ticket to heaven, not, a, not a, a, an innocent plea over your sins, which are all true, but he offers you a relationship that changes who you are. He continues on in verse three. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you, that each one of you know how to control his own vessel or body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. And so literally the, the concept, we call ourselves vessel collective church, which it means that we are vessels of the living Christ set apart for his kingdom and his purpose. That is a biblical concept. That word in scripture and first Thessalonians chapter four, verse four, literally is the word vessel. It's literally what we are. And to be a collective of vessels, to see ourselves as being poured out and to be filled up with him. And he says that each one of you know how to control his own vessel in holiness and honor. And so what Paul is asking them to is to control more and more. And I know that that seems uh, to be a bit contradictory if you've been in church or you've read much about scriptures, that we are to be people that don't desire control. 
is that, that control can sometimes be a bad thing. And I, I, I'll not dog my wife. I will use my wife as a beautiful example. She was like, I didn't know I was a controlling person until I had people in my life to control. And I married you and I had these three little ones. And she's like, yeah, I kind of have a desire to control people more than I anticipated. And so trying to control every situation and not trusting the Lord is definitely not of, the, of God. But this idea of controlling, he's calling us to control our own body and to be in control. Uh, and this is where, like I said, we get the name. And our mission is that we are called to be vessels, biblically, literally, of the living Christ set apart for his purpose and his kingdom. And again, just like the first part, this isn't a reprimand. This isn't a reprimand on these people. They're not necessarily struggling in this area. This is a warning to them. And so he warns them in this way. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you learn to control his own vessel. So I'm, I, I talked to families beforehand. I'll give you a quick PG-13 rating. So I, I want, I'm going to talk a little bit about sexual immorality. So if you have a, a teenager or child you're not comfortable with in here, now is your time to spend the next five to seven minutes in the hallway. Fair warning. So first century Roman Empire had a problem with sexual immorality. Uh, Sexual purity and honor was unknown among them. This this idea of being sexually pure and sexually moral was an archaic and a a, a past thought or consideration and an ancient mindset. This was a, a society, first century Rome, that was much too advanced for that. They're much too smart and beyond and have evolved out of this idea of sexual morality. And every type of perversion and promiscuity existed in this culture. And I think that when we see this, we see the Roman Empire fall. I think that when a culture gives itself over to sexual impurity, it signals the fall of an empire. Romans 1, verse 24 and 25, Paul writing to the church in Rome, he says, therefore, God gave them up, talking about the people of Rome, encouraging the church, warning them against sexual impurity. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Man, and that is the fall of the Roman world. Well, luckily for us, that's not something that we have to struggle with in 21st century American empire, right? It's not an issue, so we'll just move right along. That's laughable. In Psalm 35, and I've reflected on this a lot this week, is that I read this about the Roman Empire in the first century. I think about 21st century American Empire, and we're in that same place. You read these words about, about believing lies rather than truth, about worshiping creation over a creator, and you think, man, that's, that's us. Like, he's writing that about us. And I was reading in my quiet time, I was reading in Psalm 35 and David reflects on the wickedness of the world that creates shame and confusion. And I think I just look at the culture and the world around us. I think how much confusion and shame is there over sexual immorality. And it's even within the church is that sexualization has become so mainstream, so normalized as that it's invaded into the church. In the past 15 years, pornography has ravaged the men of the church. In the past 15, 20 years, pornography has 
taken hold and taken root in the church and has spread like cancer, especially among men. And I wanna read some stats just to, to bring awareness to this concept. These are some stats I read this week. It says, most statistics on pornography used to say that the average age of a child's first exposure to pornography is 11 years old. New research from the security technology company Bitdefender, lost my spot, has reported that children under the age of 10, under the age of 10, now account for 22% of online porn consumption under the age of 18. So of, of pornography consumption online under the age of 18, ages 10 and below attribute to 22% of that uh, consumption. It also said this statistic, 10% of seventh graders worry that they have an addiction to pornography. Seventh graders. And man, we think about how far, and I shared that with one of our elders this week, as I said, we were talking about this. And she was like, that's disgusting. And it is. We can read that, but we, we want to turn a blind eye to it. We don't realize that this is within the church. And Paul is warning this church in Thessalonica about sexual immorality and what the world offers and to flee from that. And the same is true about us. And the lie is that sexual immorality is a victimless crime. You see, one of the things that's big in church right now and in the American Christian church is the church wants to tackle the issue of human trafficking. That's big. Churches are are seeing what can we do? How can we put effort into tackling this epidemic and this, this problem with human trafficking? Well, the truth is, if the church wants to attack and handle the issue of human trafficking, the church needs to handle the issue with pornography because pornography funds human trafficking. If, there were, if, porno, if the porn industry wasn't bigger than McDonald's and bigger than the NFL, then there wouldn't be a human trafficking issue and there wouldn't be a problem. And know that this doesn't feel like, gosh, I came to church today. I want to know how much Jesus loved me and sing about his love for us. And now here we are talking about this. But, the, but man, part of it is how real do we want to be? And do we want to authentically follow Christ? Do we want to see him do what we believe he can do? And do we want to tell the truth? Because this is an issue. This is a problem. And it's not a victimless crime. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, to the church in Corinth. This is the theme through all of Paul's letters to all of the churches, even the church today. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. I'm going to steal from someone. I'm going to slander someone's name. I'm going to do something to someone. But, sexual immoral, but, a, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And if we think about ourselves as a vessel, like if we have this biblical view of us in this body, in this flesh that we are, we put so much time and attention to make this look good, right? We, I, I was here on Sunday and, or on Friday this week, and there was 10 times as many cars in this parking lot of the YMCA on a Friday morning than on a Sunday morning. You can come in this gym and be with God. And there's more people here to work out, to exercise. And that's not a knock on anyone that's exercising. I exercise twice a week with my buddy, Dustin. You're getting there, Dustin. You'll make it. Trust me, if you just follow me. That's not a knock on that. We put all this effort into it, but to truly see ourselves is how God sees us. 
And scripture says that our eyes are a window into our soul. Jesus says it, Matthew 6. He says, the eyes are a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Scripture also says that the mouth is an overflow of the heart. And so if we think about ourselves and we think about what are we putting in, and maybe for you it's not pornography or lust or sexual immorality. Maybe it's reputation. Maybe it's money. It's your love for money. It's your desire for success. It's your desire for comfort. Whatever it is that you're putting in front of your face is what's going into who you are. And if what's coming out of you is anger, is malice, is rage, is hate, is division, it's an overflow of what's in your heart. So I want us to consider how we were in control and we take seriously the vessel that the Lord gave us more and more. Paul continues in verse eight, he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, that thank you, Lord, that I can preach the word of God, not the word of man, right? Is it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what I think, I can stand firmly on the word of God. So if you disregard that, you're not disregarding me, you're disregarding God but who gives his spirit to you. Verse nine, now concerning brotherly love that you, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work within your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so the next thing Paul moves on is he encourages them to love more and more. And I love this line. And I, like I said at the beginning, I mean, the vessel is not perfect, right? Let's be real. But we do this well. This could be, I believe that this could be written about our church. This line that he says, now concerning the love, the brotherly love that you have for one another, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And this could have been written about the vessel. We don't excel at everything, but we excel at loving one another well. And that's part of our vision here, the vessel. We say that we are called towards an upward relationship with the Lord, an outward relationship with the world, and an inward relationship with one another. That is how we make Christ known by how we love one another. Uh, This past week, our elders were meeting. We were talking with another church and he was telling about potentially someone from another area there. They had some people that were gonna move and come come to the vessel. And so they were asking about our church. And one of our elders said, we can promise you this, we will love your people well. We will love this family well. And I just love that idea. And if we go back to this obituary right here about Billy Lionel Schultz. He grew up in Starks, Louisiana. And if you want to grow up in Starks, Louisiana with the middle name Lionel, you're going to get in a lot of fights run up. And Bill did. So Billy Lionel Schultz, he was known for, as I read in this obituary, for how he loved others. And I can testify to this. Shay can testify to this. If anyone knew Bill Schultz, knew that he loved others really well. And this line says, you can't meet anyone who knew him who didn't know his love for Jesus. He was known for how he loved one another or other people. And he was known for how he loved Jesus. But you see, he wasn't known for how he loved Jesus because he talked about Jesus all the time. He was known for how he loved Jesus because of the way he loved. 
that he truly loved other people as Christ would love them. The scripture says that to love is to know God. And if you do not love, you do not know God. And so we as Christ followers, if you want Jesus to be shown in your life, it's for how you love others, not for the the sticker on your car, not for the radio station that you listen to, not for whatever the banner is on your Facebook profile or what you say. It's by how you love. And that was true of Bill. And I can testify to that, is that people knew he loved Jesus because of how he, loved, he himself loved. And so Paul is encouraging him to love one another more and more. And I want you to know that that, like following Jesus, is not a destination, but it's a journey. Is if you've been in genuine relationship with other people within the church, you know that it's hard. That's why scripture, again, over a hundred times in the New Testament, talks about how we are to love one another. It says we're to bear with one another in love, be gentle with one another with how we love. It's hard work and it's a commitment and it's not easy. We are not lovable people. Amen? Oh, just me? Yeah, y'all are lovable, but I'm not. He continues on in verse 13 and, and he gets into this theology, theology about life and death and resurrection and rapture. It says this, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those, as others, excuse me, I butchered that, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so he gets into this language about falling asleep in Christ. And I know that may sound strange, is what do you mean? Are we not dead? Does that mean they're just sleeping in Christ? And that's not the truth at all. And Paul doesn't believe that at all. Paul wrote in Philippians, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's like, it'd be better if I died and went, and went to be with the Lord than to live and be here on this earth. But it's better that I'm here for your sake. And so this language of, of that, that's used here and this theology of falling asleep with the Lord is very common. And the same language that Jesus used when, when he brought Lazarus back from the dead, he said that the same thing. He used the word asleep. He said, Lazarus is asleep when talking about his death. And if you're confused, don't worry. His disciples were confused. So he had to dumb it down for them, which I appreciate. And John chapter 11, verse 11 through 14, he says about Lazarus, he says, after saying these things, he said to them, this is Jesus, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Do you know how easy it is for the power of Christ to raise someone from the dead? It's as easy as waking someone up for Jesus. That's power. Now, some of us are harder to wake than others. My kids are various scales of that spectrum, but that's the power of Christ that just as it's easy enough for you to wake up your spouse, even when you're trying to tiptoe through early on a Sunday morning and not wake them as you're getting up before them, that's how easy it is for Jesus to raise someone from the dead. That's how easy it is for Jesus to give you life where there is death. 
to forgive your sins. It's not a struggle. It's not hard. He doesn't have to labor over it. The battle's been won. It's as easy as waking someone up. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Then the disciples said to him, like I said, we're in good company if you're confused. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Like if he's just sleeping, then we'll just let him sleep. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, thank you, Jesus. Lazarus has died, period. He's like, okay, you dumbos. No, he's dead. He's been dead. He started, he started to stinketh. The scripture literally says, Lord, he wants to go into the thing. It says, Lord, he stinketh about Lazarus in the tomb. Okay, that's a hard sleep if you're stinketh that bad. But the truth is, is that the Lord is calling us as his church. And what Paul's encouraging these people in Thessalonica is to hope more and more. Because I can read this about Bill Schultz and I love him. And just because I know Christ and I know that he knows Christ doesn't make this not sad. You see, as Christ followers, hope isn't a replacement of your grief. So if you've lost someone or you've mourned something or you've had heartache over something, it's not like, oh, you just gotta know Jesus. Everything will be okay. No, is that hope doesn't replace grief. Hope changes our perspective on grief. And so Paul addresses this here. He says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And the truth is, as Christ followers, we view death differently. Is that death is this personification, this perfect embodiment of what sin does. Sin destroys, it destructs, and it leads to death. The wages of sin is, but the gift of life, the gift of Christ is eternal life, Right? So we see it differently. So even in this moment, this year has been full of pain. It's been full of grief. It's been full of sorrow. Many of us in this room have buried people. Many of this, people in this room have lost jobs and been in difficult circumstance. Now I want you to know that your grief is appropriate because when Jesus saw Lazarus, short of first in the Bible, what did he do? He wept. Jesus wept when he arrived and he saw Mary and Martha brokenhearted over his friend Lazarus. He grieved with them. And then he raised him from the dead as if he was waking someone up. My 91-year-old grandmother's there. And that's been hard. And so she's at that place in her life where she's ready. And my mom and her four sisters know that she's ready. And they're ready too. But I talked to my mom yesterday and she just wept over that. Is it just because Maul's ready doesn't make it easy? Just because the time is now and she knows Jesus and she's ready to go and be with our Lord and Savior doesn't mean it's not hard. And so I want, to, I want you to give you permission to grieve over the things in your life. I'm gonna invite the worship team back over here, back over here, up here. And they're gonna close us. And what we're gonna do as we close is on your chair, or the chair next to you should be a communion packet wafer, communion elements. So what we're gonna do as we close, and I want us to take a time to take communion. I'll give you a little bit of instruction over these is this isn't how we normally do it, but this is a very COVID friendly alternative. So there's two little cellophane wrappers here. The top one, if you pull back, will, exp- will allow you to access the wafer. 
and then the big one will, will give you the juice. And so I, wanna, I want us to take time as we close is for you to just let your heart settle. And right now, consider what the Lord's putting here, what it is you're struggling with, what you may be walking through in your life. Is it the last thing that Jesus did before his death, before going to the cross for our sins? He girded himself in humility. He bent down, he washed the disciples' feet and he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. John 1, 1, his word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God became man and dwelt among us. Then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins blood of the new covenant so as they close us in worship I want you to encourage you to take time to consider what is the Lord calling you to more and more is it more and more relationship more and more love for one another more and more hope in your life more and more forgiveness for others more and more forgiveness for yourself just whenever you're ready stand and worship and take communion at the end. You can take communion, stand and worship however you need to do it. But to take time right now to know that the Lord knows where you are. You can't articulate it, but he knows it. You can't express where your heart is. He knows it. You reflect on what you've been through. He's walked that road with you. He knows the hairs on your head. He knit you together. Your life was purchased, every sin forgiven, completely washed clean. I'm gonna pray. And then they're gonna close us. I want you to worship. I want you to take communion. And I'm gonna be right back here under these windows. If, if you need prayer, spoken, unspoken, detailed, undetailed, I want to be able to pray with you. So let's pray. Thank you for joining us this morning for our service. We are publishing content throughout the week for Church at Home through our social media and website. For more information, visit www.vessel.church.